everyone. Welcome to Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina Yerling Biru. So my guest this week is one of my all-time favorites, and he's been part of my cultural vocabulary for decades now. It's author David Sedaris. As for so many of you, the public radio show This American Life with host Ira Glass was my gateway drug to a whole bunch of geniuses who really revolutionized the personal essay format. There in the 90s, I found contributor Sarah Vowell, David Rakoff, and of course, David Sedaris. From him, I found his sister Amy Sedaris and her collaboration with Stephen Colbert, and on and on. And now, a couple of decades later, I got to sit down with Sedaris in a basement of a hip hotel in central Stockholm. Not a bad turn of events. So David Sedaris is a contributor to The New Yorker, and he sold 12 million copies of his books. And I think this is because somehow, even though his life has been completely unique and most of the time unattainable for us, the readers, he still manages to hold up a mirror and grant us some much-needed comfort, laughter, and reflection in the weirdness that is life. His stories draw most often from his own life and experiences, growing up as one of six in the Sedaris family, observations on his parents, on writing and daily life, and his longtime love, Hugh, whose patience and steady charm have made him somewhat of a hero to us readers in terms of relationship material. Hugh and David have lived outside of the U.S. for years, and Sedaris often tells of their many, many homes. I think we're up to 13 homes now in the U.S., in France, and in West Sussex, England, where they spend most of their time. Now he's on tour with his latest book of essays, Calypso, and I feel particularly privileged that in all the years I've read and followed David Sedaris, that this is the book that I get to speak to him about. It's hilarious and charming, but also very beautiful and sad. Now at the age of 61, he reflects on aging, his beloved mother's alcoholism and much too early death, his adverse relationship to his father, and his mentally ill sister Tiffany, who committed suicide a few years ago. Now, just as he does so well in his essays, our conversation took some sharp and interesting turns. We talked about his hatred of banal American service banter. We talked about Tiffany's death, the illusion that is writing personal stories and social media, dating during the height of the AIDS epidemic, his Trump-supporting father, and how he and Hugh still complement each other after so many years. We meet on a cold day in March in Stockholm. I'm early, and it turns out so is David, and he's ready to begin. We have a small table in the basement bar of the hotel where he's staying, so you'll occasionally hear some of the other guests. David, who just walked in from an early morning walk in the rain, begins by showing off his newly acquired Swedish skills as some coffee is brought in. And a lot of people don't notice it. Well, thank you for bringing that down here. Thank you very much. Jag skulle vilja köpa café. En cup café, tack. Jag skulle vilja köpa... No, that means I want to buy. Jag skulle vilja ha en cup café. Right? Yeah, en cup café. En cup café, tack. You're so good on Swedish. I used learn to speak Swedish CD. Wow. Oh, did you? Before mm-hmm. coming here? Or before is it something I came. you've done in general? I mean, been interested in Swedish before? I was. I used it once before when I came here mm-hmm. seven years ago. So we're sitting here in a... I'm just going to take some coffee. 
in a room that feels fit for like Jay Z or something and good wine. <laughs> it turns it was like kind of a nightclub over the weekend. Mm-hmm. It turned it was, loud music was emanating from here, from this cave. From this yes cave, right? So I usually I've been reading you for years, and I usually always find something to connect to in, in everything, in all your little reflections. But there's one thing in this new book that I don't. So I was born and raised in the U.S., and my mother was from Spain, and much like you, I've lived everywhere and done everything. And I personally miss like crazy eye contact and banal banter at restaurants and a how are you in an elevator. Um, so when I go to the States, I just feel like I'm embraced with a warm blanket. And I know that you can't abide by the banality of the U.S. service culture. Do you, do you see me as a sad person for wanting to? No, I want to connect. Mm-hmm. Like when I go to the supermarket, I look around me and I see all these people on their phone. And I think that is so rude. And I would never have any kind of an encounter like that and not talk to somebody. I just don't like that banal, t- like when you check into a hotel, how was your trip in? Mm-hmm. You're here for business or pleasure? Well, I hope <laughs> you save some time for pleasure. It's just a script they've been handed, and, and there's nothing to do with it. Like, I was in California a while ago, and they said, um, how's your day, how's your morning going so far? Mm-hmm. And I said, my, my morning is like three minutes old. I said, I don't understand why you have to turn that into a question. Like, I don't understand why you can't just say, good morning. Mm-hmm. I don't, because there's nowhere for me to go with my answer. And then when you say something like that, then it just gets weird. And she said, okay, how was your rising? How was your rising? Yeah. And that was in California three months ago. And I guarantee you that I will hear it four times, at least on this trip. And within a couple of years, it'll be normal. Like, welcome in. Okay. Welcome in spread like wildfire across the United right. States. So you go into a store now, anywhere in the country. You have a greeter. Welcome in. <laughs> but what does your rising actually mean? That you're getting up in the morning or some sort of religious... I don't... <laughs> right. I would ask that of Jesus Christ. Right, like, exactly. It's like a religious metaphor. On Easter. Yeah. You know, exactly. Christ. That's what I was... My first thing was like, have you risen from the... De- maybe a vampire or something? But... And in American shops... Mm-hmm. It's, it's a script as well. Like, got any, what are your big plans for the weekend? Got mm-hmm. any plans? And if somebody asks me, like, a real question, like, what made you think that those pants were a good idea? That's fine. We mm-hmm. can talk about that. There's a place to go with it. No, but I understand. I mean, there's, there's all or nothing, right? A really interesting question or, or just the banality of it. But then there's the, the opposite, which you can get a bit more, in, in, at least maybe in Northern Europe, where you don't say anything at all. You right. walk into an elevator and it's like, we are actually in this world together, but there's no eye contact at all. And well, it's been interesting to be in Sweden and to talk to people in Sweden, and to talk to people who lived outside the country or people who came here from another place. Mm-hmm. Like I was speaking to a French woman the other day, and she said, you know, it, she was saying that people don't make eye contact mm-hmm. and people don't really speak to you. She said, if your car broke down on the side of the road, you could be there for hours and nobody would stop. And she said, it's not that they're rude. Oh, no. It's just that they think, well, I don't want to bother that person. And so I just kept thinking of someone calling out for rape and people thinking, I don't want to disturb them. <laughs> exactly. 
No, no, but you, you really hit the nail. It has, it, it is, it's more out of politeness than it, it's a very strange thing about it. But anyway. No, I, and it's something I've noticed myself mm-hmm. since I've been here. And, and I noticed it the first time I came to Sweden, too, and I read it as rudeness. Mm-hmm. It's not. Until somebody explained to me that, oh, no, no they just don't want to make presumptions or they don't want to, uh, right, intrude on your plans. For many of us who have read you for years and years, you and, and Vowell and, and Ira Glass and, and the whole bunch, I mean, you were kind of a revolution for us in personal essay writing and radio. And Do you have an idea as to why that had such a huge impact? Well, I think at that time you didn't hear people on the radio who didn't sound like they didn't belong on the radio. Mm-hmm. Like there was a radio voice, and it's pretty much the opposite of my voice. <laughs> and my- or Sarah, Va- Sarah Val's voice, mm-hmm. um, which I love Sarah's voice, mm-hmm. but especially to a lot of men, they have an idea of a woman's voice, and it's not Sarah's voice. And, and it just seemed like as long as we didn't have the voices, then we would also kind of tell stories in a different way. Right. Uh, so we were allowed to do that. And if you think about it now, though, because during those years, since then, a couple decades, there's been another sort of revolution, the social media revolution, where everyone's telling everything about what they're doing every day and eating every day and liking you know, personal stories. Has that somehow changed how you write or think about writing about yourself? Uh, no... Uh, no, I mean, I think I give the illusion of exposing myself, but it's just the illusion. I've never given away anything that has made me feel like, great, now there's nothing where my soul used to be. <laughs> but I, again, it's just an illusion. I, I, there's, I never write about sex. Uh, I don't. When you're writing about other people, it's really tricky because everybody has their secrets. And I don't want to expose their secrets. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to make it difficult for anyone to get a job. Um, but everyone, social media is also an illusion. I mean, everyone. I guess I, I'm. I'm not. I've never seen even what Twitter looks like. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a Facebook page in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never. I got Instagram, but just so I could follow my sister. But I'm not involved in that. Mm-hmm. I, it's too hard of a world for me. It's too, uh, it's too mean of a world to me. Uh, sometimes there'll be an article online, and I'll and they'll they'll and they'll say comments, and I'll think, oh, I wonder if I bet everybody enjoyed that as much as I did. And then I'll read the comments, and I'll think. Gosh, what planet am I living on? Mm-hmm. The, the the concerns people have with the article, none of it even ever occurred to me. Mm-hmm. You know, their criticism never. Like they're criticizing aspects that I just it would be like somebody said I ate breakfast, and then people like, well, yeah, well, in large parts of the world there are people who can't eat breakfast. Right, right. What about them? And it's like, well, that's not what the essay is about. The right. essay is not about. 
breakfast all over the but world. But that's interesting. So you feel that sort of the, I don't know what to call it, maybe like the, the trigger culture or the, the PC, has that become more prevalent the past decades? I mean, I know you're the type of, I know that you can um, comment to someone in your book signing line. To get one of those interesting uh, conversations going, you were saying you can ask if they're going to have an abortion this summer, for example, um, and, and, and to get, but have reactions become more, I guess the word is triggered, well, yeah, you can choose the wrong person. Yeah. And it happens every now and then. You pick the wrong person. Um, this young woman came up, and let's say her name was, I don't know, Cheryl. And I said, Cheryl, have you ever had sex for money? And she got furious at me. But it was, but what she left out of her Twitter rage, you know, which I didn't read, I just heard about, was that I was really nice to her. And we talked before and after that, and I established, it's not like she came up to get a book signed and I was rude and I threw the book back at her and I said, you know, said that in an unpleasant way. I was jolly. I, and I just thought it was funny that that would be the question that an author would ask you. All right. But are you honestly interested in her answer or are you interested in her reaction? I, it never occurred to me that she had had sex for money. No. No. Getting back to what you said before, because I don't want... If somebody came to get a book signed and I say, how are you? Which is nowhere to go with that. Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh, I'm fine, thank you. And I say, oh, that's good. And I hand them the book back. Mm-hmm. I'd rather... That's, that's disgraceful. Mm-hmm. So I want to... You know, if you ask a question like... You know, what's the most you've ever spent on a pair of shoes? Then you can go all kinds of places. I mean, that's not a great question. It's just mm-hmm. something that came to my mind. But you can go somewhere with that. And you have a two-minute conversation. Because otherwise, people are standing in line. And they think, oh, my God, what am I going to say? He's heard everything before. Mm-hmm. So you just ask them a question they didn't expect. And then have a conversation they didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And some people are, like, determined to steer that, you know, God damn it, I came here to tell him that story about <laughs> something that happened to me last Tuesday. And the story of what happened to them last Tuesday is never very good. Mm-hmm. But sometimes something can be said in that, con- in that conversation that's like, wow, that's really uh, startling and, and uh, great to know. Mm-hmm. You know, this woman came up. And she had, like, Mary Jane Donna Sue Johnson. And so I said, gosh, that's, you have four first names. Mm-hmm. That's, I said, you, if you ever get married, you can't hyphenate. You know, you really <laughs> can't. And she said, I had an identical twin who died at birth, and my parents tacked her name onto my name. I mean, like, something like that. That's like. Amazing, wow, isn't it? That's a huge idea I mean, when you to think put about, on a child. <laughs> yeah, and to live with that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so that's beautiful mm. to me. Well, I mean, I, I know you said that that, you, that everything was sort of an illusion, but I felt very strongly about this new book. Um, just in, in passing, I remember reading Joan Didion's um, Magical Thinking, mm-hmm. Your Magical Thinking. Oh, I love that. And, and how much it made me think about the opinions that society has about how you should grieve. 
that there's a right way to grieve mm -hmm. and a wrong way to grieve. And reading Calypso, it may, really made me think about that there's a right way and a wrong way of how society sees that we should deal with our ill relatives and things we go through. And, they, and, and it made me think a lot about that and about my own things, and I really appreciate that. And I thought that it was a very, very many strong passages in there. And I was wondering, preparing to write about your sister and your mother, how did you do that and how did you prepare the rest of your family? Uh, well, writing about my mother that way, I always wanted to, but I had to wait until I got a certain distance from it, that exact distance from it, and then I could do it. Um, because I just needed to be a certain age myself and to be able to... Was it too painful before? No, I just didn't think that... I thought that there was just a big part of it I couldn't understand. Or I was going to be too judgmental about it or something. Mm -hmm. My sister Tiffany, that wasn't hard at all. I mean, I started writing at the moment that I got news that she had killed herself. I, I mean, May with I Tiffany, I had started like... grieving. I had been doing it for eight years oh. already. So that was just a formality when she killed herself. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't difficult to write about. And I gave the essay to everyone in my family and asked if there was anything that... But I, but I knew there would be nothing in there that they would have a hard time with. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot that I left out of that essay that would have made it much more powerful. But uh, Tiffany wouldn't have wanted people to know those things about her, I think. It just felt like exposing her... A bit too much, mm -hmm. but it would have made it, again, more powerful. When Tiffany died, you know, I've been keeping a diary for 40 years, and so I have a diary guide, and it's because it's just too much to go through 40 years of a diary, and most of it's boring, but every now and then something happens that I think might be useful later, or I think it might be funny, or I could use it in an essay. And so I put it in my diary guide. I'll say December 6th, uh, went in for a cystoscopy, mm -hmm. right? Um, so later, if I'm writing an essay about it, I can pinpoint it. So I just typed the word Tiffany into the search engine for this diary mm -hmm. guide file. And I was with my sisters right after Tiffany committed suicide, and we were all at the beach, and I just read, Tiffany came home with a black eye. Tiffany uh, had a tubular pregnancy. Uh, Tiffany spent the weekend with Maureen. Tiffany, and I read through, and there were maybe like 50 quick little, and then I looked at the portrait that came from, the, 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 they formed a portrait, those 50 sentences. And I thought, oh my God, did we not see that? Mm -hmm. Like, I guess, how did we, that's not normal, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and it wasn't normal for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. and I, but I guess we all thought, like, oh, Tiffany's going to get it together, like, tomorrow. She's going to get it, she's going to come to her senses, and mm -hmm. she's going to, but the portrait that, that came forth was of a really troubled mentally ill person. Mm -hmm. um, you write that uh, and there's a passage in your book where your father says sort of about regarding responsibility of the family. He says, 
I don't know if it had anything to do with us regarding our suicide. And then you write, um, but how could it have not? Doesn't the blood of every suicide splash back on our faces? Is that something you feel after going through this still? Or When I was writing the essay, every now and then, when you're writing an essay, a line like that, what I meant was we're, we all saw it happening. We all watched it happen. And so, you know, therefore the blood splashed right. back on our faces. And that's something I didn't think about until I sat down and wrote that. And it was just funny because I was just thinking about that line. Because when you're writing something and then you have a line like that that just seems like sort of perfect to you or mm -hmm. whatever, you should cut it. Yeah. And it really does stick out in that essay, and it mm -hmm. seems like somebody else wrote that line mm -hmm. rather than me. Kill your darlings. Yeah, and so my editor at The New Yorker said, eh, get rid of this, and I said, no, I'm going to keep it. And I always go back and forth on it, because I know what I meant by that line, and I think it's very true that we're all, all of us are responsible for every suicide. Um, in the world, really, mm -hmm. for not. But that said, I, I also realized that nothing could have helped my sister. I mean, you can't make somebody take their medication. If talking to her, my sister Lisa is a really sweet person who has been through a lot and who feels like she needs to give. And she's a very... And so Tiffany would call and talk at Lisa for hours and hours and hours and attack Lisa and and her thinking, Tiffany's thinking was just crazy, you know, just mm -hmm. listening to it would just, you would get off the phone and you would think of nothing else for weeks afterwards and you would think, wait a minute, how could she say that when before she said that and that, but it didn't do any good. Like Lisa listening to Tiffany for all those hours, it didn't prevent Tiffany. And none of us had guilt necessarily after Tiffany because there was nothing that any of us could have done. Right. That said, we still watched it happen. Of course, that other strong passage that many people reference in your book, when when the last time you see Tef Tiffany, you, there's like a, a bouncer or a guard or something that you ask to close the door when, she's, when she wants to come in to see you. What kind of reactions have you gotten to that passage? Oh, I don't read anything about myself, no. but I know that, uh, you know, people have told me that, uh, you know, I get a lot of, how dare you, you should be ashamed of really? yourself. And, but I hear from a lot of people who have had mentally ill people in their family, and they write me letters, and they say, I know exactly what you were talking about, mm -hmm. I do the same thing, because it sounds very selfish mm -hmm. to say that you need to... Uh, protect yourself, that sounds very current and like, I need, it's time for me to take care of me. But any encounter with Tiffany, it, it would mess you up for days or weeks afterwards. And I just started this tour and I thought, I can't deal with that right now. I can't devote the time. I, you know, I'm on tour, so I can't go to bed every night thinking about this and wake up every morning and think about it all day, every day. I'll talk to her later, and the later just never mm -hmm. came. 
from my part, the reaction, I think a lot of people who are on the other side, I mean, who have family members who or whatever who have been through this, I think one needs to hear that. One is not alone and maybe not being able to help in every single situation. So. But changing the subject, which is something you're so great at. Um, thank you for sharing Hugh with us all, or thank him for letting you share this. There's a, there's a th wonderful passage in the book where you talk about that very recently, I mean, years and years into your relationship, you asked him about how many people he'd slept with before he met you. And I was really surprised at how long you waited to ask that question. Were you not curious? When Hugh and I met, I had really kind of had one boyfriend. And I knew that he'd had, like, three mm -hmm. boyfriends. And so I just thought, oh, I don't know that I want the whole answer to that question now. You know, I'll, I'll wait a while. I didn't mean to wait that long. Mm. But... And the curiosity wasn't, like... I mean, I knew it was going to be... You know, a fair number. <laughs> Were you shocked at the number? Uh, not really. I mean, I don't know how many people people sleep with today. You know, I mean, thirty to me seems like okay, mm -hmm. but maybe to a lot of people that would be like thirty. Oh my God, I kind of a whore are you? <laughs> but for my age, and if to be a gay man, thirty is like on the low side really on the low side. But if it had been more than that, I probably wouldn't be here. But in today. hindsight, was it good that you waited so long to ask that question? Or I mean, would it have I don't been? know that it would have affected no. things one way or the other. The good thing about Hugh is um, he and I have the same ideas about fidelity, you know. I mean, like most gay couples that I know, they have an open relationship and and it works well for them, but that kind of thing does not work for Hugh and I. We, and and really, I can I I don't know how you could deal with more than one person like that in your life. One is all that I can handle, mm -hmm. and also we have the same idea about kind of a home, you know, and or like, many homes in your case. Yeah, <laughs> but Hugh would never say, "Oh, I went out and I had and I decided I had dinner on my own," or wouldn't occur to him. Like, we both bring things home. Look, I found this. I thought you might like it. I brought it home. We, so we both have the same ideas about sharing things. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we find the same things important. Did he ever ask you the same question back? I offered, you know, the information yeah. <laughs> after he'd given me his Because sometimes when your partner number. is not curious, you sort of wonder, why don't you want to know about all these things I've done? Well, I think back then, too, like when Hugh and I met, there were so many people who were dying of AIDS. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every day you just lived in fear that you were going to hear that somebody that you had been with was sick or mm -hmm. was dying. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty dark time that way, and I had just moved to New York City, mm -hmm. and so I, well, I remember I met somebody, and I was interested in this person, and 
And then the person said, well, you know, I have AIDS. You know, that shouldn't change anything. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, it did for me. I mean, it wasn't like the person said, I'm HIV positive, which was a death sentence back mm -hmm. then. The person said, I have AIDS. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't known the person really for all that long. And so I just thought, well, do, do you... I, it was just... Uh, I was afraid. I, I was just afraid. And I thought... Uh, uh, I thought, well, I don't want to get it. Mm -hmm. And... Do I want to sign on to see somebody through like a really ghastly death when I've only known them for like two hours? Mm -hmm. I thought, well, two hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, can, I can back out, you yeah. know, after only two hours. But I'm asking, just because you told that story, is, are you still thinking, I mean, does it make you feel guilty or is it just... Uh, I hadn't know, thought about no. it until just now. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think the two hours is a pivotal part of that. Yeah, I think know? two hours is fine. I mean, you yeah. can back out even if they say I like I don't like coffee. I drink tea. Yeah. I mean, I mean not to lighten that story, but <laughs> I mean two hours is okay. Yeah, and and I remained friends with this person. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I didn't. And well, plus I I don't know. I don't. I didn't ever think like, well, I want a boyfriend for like a year and a half. No. <laughs> like I thought. I, don't, I want a boyfriend, and I don't want to. I want to cross it off my list, and I don't want to think about it ever again. Like I just want a boyfriend, and I'll put up with whatever. I don't want to go through all right this, getting to know some. I know the. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I'm. I'm gonna have just a little bit more time left, and I'm gonna ask you what I'm sure everyone asks you. But but I think it's interesting. You have been outside of the states for years and years and years, um, but an American still. And has have things been different for you the past three four years with Trump? I mean, do you get different questions when you're on this side of the Atlantic, and, and do you feel differently in any way? It depends on what country I'm in. I mean, sometimes. Uh, I go to a country and it's all political questions, which I'm, it's not really what I tend to write about. Um, and of course, you know, with Trump, it's so extreme that you're bound to be asked about it. You know, it's interesting because I'm in England now and with Brexit, <laughs> but like I know some people who voted for Brexit and I don't feel about them the way that I feel like, my dad voted for Trump, and I can't have any respect for my father. Like, none. Not a shred of it. If Adolf Hitler came back to life and said, I will save you $17 a year on your taxes, my father would vote for him. Mm -hmm. And I can't. I don't know, I can't. It, it's, it's so in America now, like, I'll be in England, and we take the train to West Sussex, where mm -hmm. we live a lot of the time. The train stops at Gatwick Airport. So you get all these Americans who get on the train. And you sit there and you listen to them and you're waiting. Right? So this group of Americans got on the train a couple months ago. It was two couples, and they were in their 60s. And one of them had a newspaper, and it said, oh, Trump. And the other person said, oh, my God, can we go five minutes without hearing that, that asshole's name? And I thought, oh, I like them so much. And then one of the men asked the other, he said, can you drink the water here? And I thought... <laughs> you dummy. <laughs> you dummy. But I don't see that sort of divide in the UK. I mean, I know that people who voted for Brexit and people who didn't, they're at odds, but the odds aren't as... Mm -hmm. 
it's, 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 it's not a war like it is in the United States. It's a real war zone now. But it sounds, I mean, your father, I hope he's well, he's 95. He's 90. Yeah, he's still 95. And he, I was in the United States a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. because his heart is failing. Mm -hmm. So they think, they gave him like six months to live. Just so long as he dies before the next election. Right, okay. (laughs) But I mean, because it it seems harsh that you say that, that of course, that you have no respect, and I completely understand that for him to vote in, but you can still talk and communicate and you do visit, and, and can you talk about other things or? Uh, well, it's really hard for him to talk now. I mean, mm-hmm. when I saw him, but he was trying to talk, and he was trying... Oh, so physically sort of, it's hard for yeah, him to talk. Yeah, to have a conversation. Not politically. Um, yeah, and at this point I wouldn't waste his breath. You know what I mean? I mean, right, right. it's very precious, his breath. Yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> we're never... That's an argument we've been having for, you know since I was old enough to walk. Uh, It's odd, you know, I think people used to have difficult relationships with with a parent or both their parents in the days of yore, and then their parent would get to the age of 70, and then that person would be free. Mm -hmm. But now people are living longer and longer, right? So my father's 96, and my parents kind of had me late, and I'm 62, and I feel like I've been almost deformed. You know, I think I feel like when you're younger and you have that kind of adversarial relationship, mm-hmm. you can kind of snap back and assume your body shape again. Right. But I'm like the elephant man. I'm yeah. so contorted. <laughs> you with won't this, get out of it. Oh. This adversarial relationship that's been going on for such a long, long time. Um, that said, I would not have wanted any other father. Mm-hmm. So happy to have But the fact that you've been so creative and been able to write about those adversarial things is an outlet that many of us who maybe had other kinds of relationships with our parents haven't had, so that must be, must have right. been a wonderful outlet, <laughs> even if maybe all the situations weren't Well, I do wonder about that. Like, I, I know somebody who's got... I mean, I know a couple of people who have just really, really terrible parents, and they don't write. And I think, like, because if you write, it's like somebody handing you money, Mm -hmm. really. Um, But if you can't process it in some way, I I don't know. Those are the people that I feel bad Mm -hmm. for. And I really have it perfect, because my father has such a strong ego that it never occurred to my father that he's ever done or said anything wrong or bad. And so I can talk about the things that he's done, and he's like, yeah, I did that, you know, and look at that, you know, and I did it, and I did it for, and, and, and look at look at what happened. Wow, so that's incredible. And that doesn't yeah. frustrate you? You're so much like, this was <laughs> No, because no. it could be so much worse. He could say, he could take me to court, he mm-hmm. could, he's never complained about anything I've written about him. I don't think he reads it, but I wouldn't read anything. Two people have written whole books about me. Mm-hmm. Would never open opened them. Mm-hmm. Would never in a million years. Would never read a newspaper article about me. Nothing. Uh-huh. Um, so a good trait from the Sedaris family you have in there. Anyway, <laughs> to 
block those things out. Well, like Amy doesn't do it either. No. You know, I mean, if somebody writes an article about it, you know, she doesn't ever, ever read it. I just don't see the point. It's not really... RuPaul always says, whatever, what other people think about me is none of my business. And I don't know how that makes sense, but to <laughs> me it does. makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. It's just none of my business. But you have to be the type of person who doesn't make it their business. Mm. I think I'm more insecure, and I'm like, why do they think that about me? I just think you just get so dragged down in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I accidentally came upon something one day. I was reading this article about Diablo Cody, mm-hmm. a screenwriter. And I always like her. I find her movies, like, really charming. And so it was a surprise to me that all these people don't like her for some reason. Like, they really strongly dislike her, and I don't understand why. And it was this article, and it was somebody criticizing her for living, really, and for writing another movie. And then I was reading the, 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 the comments, and somebody said, I have a physically, like, violent reaction against her. And the next person said... I feel the same towards David Sedaris, but with added violence. And his name was Unicorn Dog. (laughs) And I thought, what did I ever do to Unicorn Dog? And it really bothered me for days. And I thought, what? And it wasn't like I could ask Unicorn Dog, because who the fuck is Unicorn Dog? (laughs) This was really interesting. I wish I would have had more time. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for your book. for, uh, For thinking of me. Thank you so much to David Sedaris. His new book is Calypso, and it's out now, also in Swedish. You can subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment, please rate us. It's greatly appreciated. This show was edited by Katrin Lundell, and I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thanks so much for listening. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com see you soon